0: Where we begin this morning in Exodus chapter 36. And as we begin, we note that we're sort of beginning a long section almost to the end of the book of Exodus where the tabernacle that was previously described in the book of Exodus is now actually going to be built. And it just sort of strikes me as I think how interesting would it be for someone to just sort of come in off the street and maybe they haven't been with us through all of our studies through the book of Exodus, which, by the way, I've enjoyed so much. And this morning we bring it to an end. We're done with the book of Exodus after this morning. No, I don't mean you have to be done with it. You're free to read it anytime you want to in your Bible. It remains. But, you know, we're done in our Sunday morning teaching series through it. And the next book of the Bible that we get into is going to be the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, which, yeah, it's a fantastic book. And it has such a great link. It's a very logical place to go from Exodus to the letter to the Hebrews, because the, the, so many of the themes just transfer over from that. And so we'll be starting on that uh, sometime after I'm back from from this trip. But in any regard, just think about how, how strange it might be for somebody who hasn't been with us through our previous studies in the book of Exodus saying, You're you're here this morning, you're taking my time to talk about building a tent some three thousand five hundred years ago, and the gold and this and that. Well look, let me just read this section to you how how they're making the curtains. Let's look at it now. Exodus chapter thirty six, beginning at verse eight. Ready for this? Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, they made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain was 4 cubits. The curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to another, and the other five curtains he coupled one to another. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvedge of one set, Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain. Fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain and on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it might be one tabernacle. I don't blame a person for looking over that and saying, what is going on here? Curtains and clasps and designs of cherubim and gold and this and that what's happening collectively with this? Well, again, let me put this in context of the whole book of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells a story of how the children of Israel came out of their slavery in Egypt and God started leading them towards the promised land. As we end the book of Exodus today, they're not to the promised land yet. They're still camped at Mount Sinai. But while they were encamped at Mount Sinai, not only did God give them the law in the sense of the Ten Commandments and other law, but God also gave them instructions for building a tent of worship. That tent of worship would one day become a a temple that was set in Jerusalem. But until it was a temple, it existed as a tabernacle that was built according to an exact pattern that God gave to Moses up on Mount Sinai. Well, they were commanded to build it previously in the book of Exodus. Now they're going to actually do the building in the chapters that we surveyed together this morning. So just as I read to you in Exodus chapter 36 verses 8 through 13, it describes how they made the curtains, the things that would actually cover over the tent, that would actually be the fabric that went over and made the tent a tent. If you don't have the fabric going over, you just have a frame. But now here's the curtains that will make the tent a tent. Then it goes on to describe in Exodus chapter 36, these other items that will fill the tabernacle. But let me just say this at the outset. Friends, you might think that this is just some sort of uh, interesting, or I don't know, maybe not very interesting to you, a survey of what happened 3,500 years ago and how they made some building project. But I want you to know that that is just the bare outline of it. The extreme relevance of this to you and I today is simply this. Does God dwell among men? And when God was going to dwell among Israel 3,500 years ago, he said, build me a tabernacle to symbolize and to be the emblem of my dwelling amongst you. Well, we don't have a tabernacle today. Today we're meeting in a different kind of building. But I'll tell you this, God still wants to dwell among men. He still wants to fill the lives of men and women who have a vital concern after him. And that's what our text is concerned with, as you'll see towards the end of our time together this morning. But in any regard, Exodus chapter 36, verses 14 through 18, they talk about the curtain of goat's hair. Then they talk about the curtain of ram skin dyed red and badger skins. Then they talk about the boards connecting and for the frame and the walls of the tabernacle. Then they talk about the veil and the screen with their pillars. That makes up all of chapter 36. Then in chapter 37, it begins to describe the construction of the tabernacle furniture. Again, they were commanded to build it back previously. Now they actually build it. So you have the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 37. You have the mercy seat with the golden lid to the Ark of the Covenant. That's in verses 6 through 9 of Exodus 37. Then you have the table of showbread and its utensils. That was the table that symbolized Israel's continuing fellowship with God. Then you had the golden lampstand. That went into the tabernacle as well. That was the light that filled the tabernacle tent. Then you had the altar of incense and its incense with the oil that was all made according to the instructions that God gave. That comprises Exodus chapter 37. Now, aren't we moving through this very quickly? Perhaps a little bit too quickly for you. Maybe you think, wait, 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 more, more. Tell me more about this Ark of the Covenant. I remember the Ark of the Covenant. I saw a movie about the Ark of the Covenant. Well, no. If you're interested in a greater examination of each one of these things, we've done that work for you in our video studio. Because myself and David Wally and Nate Wagner, we sat around a table in the video studio and we talked about each one of these articles in greater depth in what we called conversational expositions, where we opened up the Bible and in sort of 10 minute chunks, we talked about these different things. So if you're more interested in the Ark of the Covenant or the altar of incense or the table of showbread and just sort of the cursory treatment we're giving it this morning please go to our website and look up those conversational expositions. They're given to you in very digestible 10 minute or so pieces at a time. But for the main point, we just want to see here. God commanded them to build it. And what did they do? They built it. And that's what the story is telling us. And then on in Exodus chapter 38, they're not done doing the building work. Exodus chapter 38 says, Uh, There's going to be an altar for sacrifice. So verses one through seven describe this altar with the grate at the bottom where they would come and actually sacrifice the animals unto the Lord. Then it describes in verse eight of Exodus 38, the bronze labor, this pool that they would use to get the water for the ceremonial washings for the priests in the conducting of their duties. Now, I just got to pause just for a moment. Because there's something very fascinating about the construction of this bronze laver that's stated in verse 8. Would you look at your Bible there? Look at Exodus chapter 38, verse 8. This is what it says. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Isn't that an interesting place to get the raw materials for the building of this structure? You get the mirrors of the women who served at the tabernacle. Apparently, there were a group of women who just gave themselves in dedicated service. I don't know if you could exactly call it the women's ministry of ancient Israel, but it was something like that. Women that just said, uh, you know, the priests do their work with slaughter and sacrifice. And that's not my place. But I want to serve the Lord. I want to make myself available to the work of the tabernacle. Well, these were women. And of course, being women, they had mirrors. That's a little joke because some of you men are just as bad or worse as some of the ladies. Let's face that. But anyway, these ladies had mirrors. And what did they do? Well, when they came to build this labor, they said, we've got bronze mirrors. Because, you know, in the ancient world, they would make a mirror out of polished metal. And they took these mirrors and they said, you know what? We don't need to look so much at ourselves. Give it to the work of the Lord. You've got to admit, that's a pretty dramatic thing for them to do in the Old Testament times because I don't think women cared less about their appearance in Old Testament times than they do in the modern day. And yet they were perfectly willing to say, no, no, not so much self-examination, more for the glory of the Lord. Now, isn't that an exciting, and I would say powerful, transferable picture unto us? You see, look, let's face it. There's many of us, who are obsessed with looking at ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about in terms of appearance. Although, look, that may be a problem for you, just frankly. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you're overly concerned about your appearance. Some of us, we could do to be a little bit more concerned about our appearance. But that's another matter whatsoever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else entirely. I'm talking about that self focus where your whole life is lived as if you're looking at a mirror. And the only thing that's important is you. How does it feel to me? Is it fun for me? Is it entertaining for me? Does it make me look good? Does it make me more popular? Me, me, me. Ladies and gentlemen, there's more than just a few of us in this room, we would do very well to take those bronze mirrors, so to speak, and bring them to the Lord and say, melt it down and make something glorious for your tabernacle. Oh, Lord, it's not like I should never look at my life. Of course you should. Of course I should. We all should be a course We should look at our life from time to time. I'm not asking you to live a life free of self-awareness uh, and looking. At, but we all can know that this can go too far very easily. Become a life that's built upon self-focus instead of God-focus. It's a very powerful thing there in verse 8. In any regard, that's what they did. And then after that, next is chapter 38. It speaks of building the court with its pillars and its linen fence. And then Exodus 38 continues with an inventory of the materials that they used to build the tabernacle. So chapter 38, verses 21 through 23, it describes the leaders of the work. It's sort of an inventory of the human resources. And then the rest of the chapter describes the inventory of gold, the inventory of silver, the inventory of bronze, because they needed to know how much they had of all those things to properly manage the work, because these were the Lord's resources. It was the Lord's tent. They had to manage it well for his glory. Now we come to chapter 39. And don't you see how quickly we're summarizing these chapters here? Chapter 39 describes the making of the priestly garments. Way back previously in the book of Exodus, it said... Make garments for the high priest and then for the regular serving priests. Make them for beauty and for glory. So first in the verse seven verses of Exodus chapter thirty nine, make an ephod that's sort of like an apron that would go from you know the upper area of the chest down below. Make an ephod for the high priest, and then make a breastplate that would go out on the outside, and then make a robe, and then make tunics and turbans and sashes and trousers for all the priests. Do that, and then after all of that was done. Exodus chapter 39 tells us that there was an overview of the work. Look at it here at verse 42 of Exodus chapter 39. It says, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work and indeed they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. What beautiful obedience. Don't you see how beautiful that is? God told us to do something, and we, we did it. And Moses managed all the work. After all, it was to he on Mount Sinai that God gave the original plans and the original blueprints, if you want to say that. And so Moses had an eye, he had a vision, he had a construction over all of it, like an architect who sort of supervised the details of everything coming together. Now, coming to Exodus chapter 40, all those individual pieces that were made in chapter 36 and chapter 37 and chapter 38 and chapter 39, all those individual pieces are now put together as a tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. So they talk about how the furniture is arranged and how they're arranged in the courtyard and then of the ceremony to consecrate the priests and then the assembly of the tent with its curtains and all the rest of it. It's all getting put together in the first 19 verses of Exodus chapter 40. And then each piece of the tabernacle is described in its setting. Look at it here, starting at verse 20 of Exodus chapter 40. Read along with me here. It says this. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, verse 22, the table of showbread. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 24, the lampstand. Then he put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, Verse 26, the golden altar of incense. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. He burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 28, they hang up the screen. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. Verse 29, the brazen altar is put in place. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then finally, verse 30 describes the labor for washing. You know what they used all the mirrors for. Then he set the labor between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and he put water there for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and whenever they came near the altar, they washed. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, friends, did you notice the repetition of a phrase and all of that? You did, didn't you? What's the phrase you noticed? As the Lord had commanded Moses. Matter of fact, that phrase or something very similar to it occurs not only multiple times in this chapter, but in the five chapters that we're considering all the way back to chapter 36, it occurs some 19 times over and over again. And there's a very deliberate stress here. The stress is this. God commanded them to do it, and they did it. And this brings us to a very important point. That as I speak it to you this morning, I understand just how out of step it is with the spirit of our age. It speaks to us about the importance of obedience. God says to do it and we do it. That doesn't sound terribly complicated. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not terribly complicated. But I wonder how you would be received. How about this? How would you be received if you went out on State Street this afternoon or go over to Stern's Wharf? Or go over to one of our college campuses and speak to a gathering of people. And if you were just to say this or carry a sign or wear a T-shirt with this message. It is important to obey God. Now, how would that be received? What would be? Yes, man, I'm glad there should be more people saying that. Or would people think you religious freak? Please put some distance between yourself and myself. I want you to think about that statement. It is important to obey God. Isn't it strange that we live in a culture today where that statement would be controversial in the ears of many or most people? If you think about it rationally, is it not important to obey God? It is important to obey him. That is, if it's real. If it's real, it's important to obey him. Listen, all I can tell you is that I believe with all of my life and with all of my heart that the message of this book, the message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did among us and everything that he taught and everything he validates says to us that it is important to obey God. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's something within me I'm not going to claim that it's within you. I won't presume to say that, but I will gladly admit to you that it's within me. There's something within me that doesn't want to obey God. There's something within me that says, don't you tell me what to do. I'll figure my own way. I'll follow my own heart. I'll figure it out myself. I know that that thing dwells within me. Maybe it dwells within you. But I know it's in me. And even though I understand that there's something in me that says, no, I don't need to obey God. I'll find my own way. Nevertheless, when I think about it rationally, not emotionally, rationally, I realize that if there really is a God in heaven and if Jesus Christ really is his only son, and if the life and the message and everything about Jesus is true, then it is absolutely essential that I obey God. And I know that I can't obey him perfectly. I have not. I cannot. And neither can you. Yet nevertheless, God helping us, we must be serious about a life of obedience before him. How painful it is. That even though this message is lost in the culture at large. How tragic it is that it's lost so many times in the church. I don't think of myself in the slightest sense as a legalistic person. I love the grace of God. I feast on the grace of God. God's grace and mercy are my life. But ladies and gentlemen, obeying God isn't legalism. Obeying God is obedience. There's a very powerful phrase that's used once in the Psalms and once I believe it's in Second Chronicles. It's a phrase, the beauty of holiness. Now, if you think obedience is a strange word in our culture, just start using that word holiness. That'll really get you. Boy, that if you think that word obedience gets you pushed outside the, the culture, just start using that other word. But friends, can I tell you, there? is a beauty to obedience. There is a beauty to holiness. Can I give you an example? Think about the life that Jesus described by the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that a beautiful life? The the problem with the Sermon on the Mount isn't what he says. It's that we don't live up to it. And so I I'm just expressing this to say that there's something powerful, something precious in us, this repetition of this phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. That's what he did. And it brings me up short. And it says, Lord, I want to obey you better. I want to obey you more. I want holiness and obedience to be more beautiful to me than they are. Well, In verse 33 of chapter 40, they set up the outer court. It says he raised up the outer court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work when that tabernacle was finally assembled. What you had was an earthly model of a heavenly reality. I know it might sound very strange to you, but that's what the Bible exactly says. That there is a reality of something in heaven where God dwells. And there's some correspondence between what Moses built and what exists actually in heaven. I don't know if it's a scale model. I don't know if it's a proportional thing. I don't know what it is exactly. But there's some kind of correspondence between what God commanded Moses to make. And what actually exists in heaven. And so it doesn't surprise us that later on in the book of Revelation. There's a mention of the Ark of the Covenant. Later on in the book of Revelation. There's a mention of an altar of incense. Later on in the book of Revelation. There's a a mention. Or excuse me in Isaiah. There's a mention of a structure that reminds us of the tabernacle. And in Hebrews chapter 9. Little preview for our coming study in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9. It tells us that at some point after Jesus finished his essential and majestic work on the cross, at some point, Jesus entered into the heavenly reality that's represented on earth by the tabernacle that Moses built. And he, Jesus, appeared in the presence of God to offer a perfect atonement for our sins. Therefore, Every time that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and put the blood of atonement upon the Ark of the Covenant, it was sort of a play acting, a foreshadowing. It was the trailer before the movie. It was all that established beforehand of what Jesus would eventually do when he went into the heavens, into the very courtroom of God and offered his own atoning blood to cover your sins and my sins. I guess we're back to that matter of obedience. Because if you put up that word obedience over my life, I'll tell you what you could say, fail. It's just a fail. Nevertheless, nevertheless, what Jesus did on the cross pays the penalty for my failure and your failure. And that's why God's great call to you and I is to come and put the focus not on those mirrors that would obsess over our own self and our parents. But God says, throw away that mirror, melt it down and look unto Jesus. Look unto what he did on the cross for you. Everything that I built in this tabernacle was intended to point you to the perfect work of my son on your behalf. Do you see the altar there? The altar's like the cross. Do you see the washing there? That's like the washing of the water of the word. Do you see the, the table of showbread there? That's like the fellowship that we're after God every day. Do you see the uh, the Ark of the Covenant behind the most holy place? That's where Jesus offered that perfect sacrifice in the heavens for our sins. So it's all a very beautiful and powerful and compelling picture. And even though I know it may seem distant and even crazy to you that we in the 21st century would look back 3,500 years, and look at what happened. We see, no, 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 because it connects with eternity, it connects with us right here today. Well, let's take a look at the last brief section here of the book of Exodus. It describes what happens when they had their first service, so to speak, at the tabernacle, Uh, verse 34 of Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Isn't that powerful? There they build the whole thing. They get the and they can't even use it. Why can't they even use it? Because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so powerfully, so majestically. There they are. Moses is so excited. We got the building made, the tabernacles made. Let me go in there and and, and and put on the new bread on the table of showbread. Let me offer some incense on the altar of incense. And as Moses goes in there, I don't know how to describe it other than to say that that tabernacle building was filled with a cloud of God's glory. That was so thick, that was so potent, that was so demonstrable in its presence and its effect that Moses just couldn't take it anymore. This is the same Moses who had experienced unbelievable things on Mount Sinai with God. Yet nevertheless, he comes into the tabernacle and says, Lord, it's too much. I can't take anymore. I've got to get out of the tabernacle. I feel like I'm going to die. The glory of the Lord was so powerful and so present that it made that tabernacle something glorious that belonged unto God himself. I want you to see two things here. First, of all, I want you to see that there is a connection between the continually mentioned obedience that we spoke about previously and the glory of God descending. Oh, I'm not trying to say that Moses earned this display of God's glory or that you and I can earn it. No, no, no. But I say this, obedience welcomes the display of God's glory. That's what it does. It welcomes. It says, come. And this is an enduring principle for us. We don't earn our rescue before God. We need to be rescued, but we don't earn it. And God doesn't love us more when we obey him. When I tell you that you should live a life concerned about obedience to God, it's not to get God to love you more. He already loves you. He's already demonstrated his love to the extreme of sending his son to die on a cross. No, 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 that's not it at all. Yet undeniably, when we walk in God's light and truth, there is blessing in our life, and there's a glory that comes from it. You know, in preparing this message and thinking about that idea of the blessing that comes to our life when we obey, I, I remembered a passage that has touched my life very deeply from Proverbs chapter 3. Let me read this to you. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, I think that this is just like God's word for you, for somebody here this morning. Maybe everything I've said just fades in the distance. But what I'm going to read right now to you from Proverbs 3, this is God's word to you this morning. Ready for this? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Now, that's a blessing. Wouldn't you love to have your paths directed by God? Yes, Lord, direct my paths. Well, what does he say? He says plainly, Trust in me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and acknowledge me in all your ways. God says, and I'll direct your path. Okay, Lord, that's filling my life with some of your glory. That's one idea. The second idea is notice it in verse 35. Again, it says Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. There was so much glory that Moses couldn't even function. I'll tell you what's beautiful about this is that without the glory, it was just a fancy tent. But with the glory of God, it was the tabernacle of God's presence. Because if I could be so bold, I'm going to say the same thing about your life. Without the glory of God indwelling your life, making the difference in your life, you're just a tent. Look, some of the tents are in better shape than others. But we're all just tense without being filled and and engulfed by the glory of God. And for some of you, that's what's missing in your life. You don't have the presence of God in your life. God speaks to you right now and he says, it can be in your life. Will you receive me? Will you receive what my son Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? A little bit later, I'm going to conclude my time with you with a prayer. In the midst of that prayer, I'm going to give an invitation for those who want to receive Jesus Christ. I tell you that right up front because I'm not trying to surprise anybody or manipulate into something. And I want you to be thinking about it. Do you want your life to be filled with the presence of God? Because I tell you, if you don't, your life is just a tent. It's just an empty tent. And you can work all day long on making the tent the best that it can be. And fine, you're going to have that tent around for a while. It may as well be okay. Okay. But no, far more important is that the presence and the glory of God fill that tent. Well, finally, here, verse thirty-six: Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till that day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Oh, I love it. I think at how stinky and rebellious Israel has been all throughout the book of Exodus. How unbelieving, how disobedient, how golden calf worshiping, how complaining in the desert, and how just bad they've been throughout most of the book of Exodus. And yet God says, no, no, no. You've come back to me. You've surrendered to me. I receive you. My presence will fill your life and I will guide you throughout all your journeys. Wouldn't you love to have that in your life from Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you love Jesus to fill your word, life and to say he'll be with you throughout all your journeys? Now, the journey always implies a destination. And Israel had a destination and so do you. And to have Jesus Christ with you throughout all your journeys, there's nothing, nothing better than that. And I tell you, it can be yours. The New Testament specifically says it can be yours. And I'm going to close with this. I want you to think about the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to put it up on the screen for you so you can read it. It says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John wrote. But when he wrote that word dwelt, he used a very curious word in his ancient vocabulary. He used an interesting word that actually means tabernacled. You you could very legitimately translate that phrase. And the word became flesh, the word being Jesus himself and Jesus, God eternal became flesh and tabernacled among us. And by using such a curious word, the apostle John was drawing the memory of every one of his readers back to the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness To be the dwelling place of God. God wants Jesus to dwell in you. To tabernacle in you. To be his place of dwelling in this world. That's Jesus' invitation to you. And to me. And to each one of us. And as I close in prayer. I'm going to give an invitation. I'll pause in my prayer. And I'll give an invitation. For anybody who wants to receive Jesus Christ to stand. And I don't do it to mark people out or, God forbid, to embarrass anybody. That's not the point of it. But, ladies and gentlemen, being a follower of Jesus bears some cost. And I would be doing a grave disservice to you if I said, I'm going to make the price of following Jesus as cheap as absolutely possible so that more would accept it. Wouldn't that be a strange way to do it? Wouldn't that be a disservice to people? So if you want Jesus to fill your life, When I give you the invitation, I think you can bear the small cost to stand for him and to say, Jesus, I trust in you and want to receive from you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you didn't stop dwelling with man back thirty five hundred years ago when Israel built the tabernacle. You still tabernacle among us, Jesus, you're still here to dwell among your people. And God, I'm bold enough to believe that you're calling people here and now to believe upon you. I I would suppose, Lord, that there's some people who've come this morning. This is the last thing that they thought they would hear. This is the last thing that they thought they would have to be confronted with. But Jesus, I pray that my voice would fade in their ears and the voice of your Holy Spirit would reign supreme and that you'd speak to individual hearts about their need to trust in Jesus and especially in what he did for them on the cross. Jesus, would you do that in our midst? Friends, while heads are bowed and eyes are reverently closed before the Lord, I simply want to ask, if you want to receive Jesus this morning, would you stand? I don't say it out of manipulation. I don't say it out of pressure. God bless you, sir. I'm just saying that, That this is a demonstration of you wanting to be a follower for Jesus Christ. Bless you, sir. Is there anybody else here this morning? Bless you, sir. The Lord sees your faith. He does. Anybody else among us here? I'll give it just a moment more. Father, I pray for these who have said, Jesus, would you dwell in my life? I don't want it to be an empty shell. I pray, God, that you would show them something of the goodness and the glory of a life lived for Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would give them a reasonable faith, a trust in you that says, Jesus, you are who you said you were. And therefore, I believe in you and what you did for me on the cross. I pray that you'd see the declaration of trusting love from these who have stood. And I pray that you'd receive them into everlasting life, not because they stood up in a church service, but because that was merely the expression of the faith and their confession of who Jesus is in their life. Lead them into everlasting life thank you that you still dwell with men. We receive it, Lord, with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.